G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon, and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. My guest today is a singer, songwriter and guitarist whose two albums belie a prolificacy that has seen him go from the New York club circuit, contributing songs to various films, playing guitar for everyone from Carl Perkins to Yoko Ono, residencies at Largo and LA and all the while spinning his own timeless, handmade sounding tunes. Harper Simon, welcome to my favourite album. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, thanks for having me here at the Chateau Marmont. Which has a lot of musical history to it, too, I think. Yeah. But I'm not sure exactly what. Although I think the Graham Parsons album cover is shot right here in the uh, in this foyer. I think you're right, yeah. Well, we should go and recreate it after, after we record this. I don't know how you'd recreate Well, I don't think there's much to recreate. I think no. it's kind of him in a chair, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Because you've got a nudie suit lying around. I do, actually. Really? Yeah, I have a nudie suit. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I bought many, many years ago in a vintage store. Awesome. Yeah. And it fit. And it fit. That's it doesn't amazing. fit me now, though. Okay. <laughs> it's lime green, and it's polyester. It's bell-bottomed, and has a lot of white arrows all over it. And I used to wear it when I took acid. Fantastic. <laughs> so, Harper, what is your favorite album? In the album? 90s. In the 90s, okay. Well, I don't know that it's my favorite album, but the album I chose to talk about is the White Album. I mean, it's certainly one of my favorite albums. Cool. So the White Album came out in 1968, years before you were born. Do you even remember the f- initially hearing it or getting into the Beatles? I don't. I don't remember it because the Beatles were... I listened to the Beatles as a, as a kid, as a small child. There was always the Beatles around. I mean, I'm sure most people, at least from my generation, would say the same. Maybe even kids today. Their parents like to play the new Beatles. You know, the Beatles had a kind of a whimsical, sweet quality to a lot of it that worked for kids. I'm sure I heard the songs from the White Album as a kid, but I don't recall. And how did you come to gravitate towards this record in particular? Out of all the, like, you, you picked this over, like, Pepper or Revolver or Rubber Soul? Yeah, I mean, it's not a... Uh, it was just an instinct. I just went with my instinct. It just can't... I just... I, I thought it would be interesting to talk about for some... I, I don't know why. I just... Uh, I can't say it's my favorite or what's better. It just seemed like it would be a fun album to talk about. Yeah. Well, my sort of theory on the White Album is that it's, at least for my mind, it's maybe not the best Beatles album, but in a way it's the ultimate Beatles album because it's so sprawling and diverse. It kind of encompasses all the different 
things they were about in a lot of ways. It's true that it's sprawling, and it's one of those albums, it's interesting to talk about it now, probably when the music business has changed so much and people, you know, like to hear one song off YouTube or whatever it is, or people have a shorter attention span or whatever, however they process uh, art or culture in the digital age, it's very different, and, you know, that was a time where people were willing to, you know, listen to a double album, and although I've got to say for all the kind of experimental tracks on there I, I wouldn't it, it's a it's a double album where I, I would say you know I wouldn't want to lose one track off the white album even revolution number nine even revolution number nine because that has its own that was very innovative in its way I don't know it was making reference to some kind of John Cage I don't know avant-garde new cut up I mean you wouldn't take that out because that spawned a whole area of music that that really influenced a lot of people I mean the tracks have something and uh, no I don't think I would lose any of them I don't consider any of the tracks to be some kind of filler or anything it does sort of speak to that idea of what's valuable about thinking of albums as whole pieces because if if the Beatles were existing today and each track was being sold individually or if they were just a band that put singles out something like Revolution Number no. 9 never probably never would have made it out there because it's something that can only exist as part of this diverse bunch of songs. True. I would agree with that. Also, you're, it's, a t- it's at a point where uh, I think it's the Beatles are very unique. Maybe not unique, but they're a band where basically you had four. You ended up having four stars, really. So everybody's finding their own voice at the time of the White Album, and so everyone is sort of, you know, being allowed to contribute songs and move in lots of different directions, and uh, as long as it sort of stays true to whatever the organizing principle of the White Album is. Which I think the organizing principles sort of seem to be we couldn't agree on which songs we're going to leave off to make it a single album, so everyone kind of gets their point of view in. Oh, I never thought about it that way. I never thought that they... I never. I really don't know if that was ever brought up that way. Do you know that for a fact? I've heard them talk about that, like George Martin, the, who, the producer, was pushing for it to be a single album and saying, like, we should just cull it down to the you know, 12 or 13 best songs but because they they said fuck it let's just do it as a double album I mean what a great idea I mean not a great idea for most bands (laughs) for most everybody else cut it down probably would be the answer but uh, for the Beatles White Album no of course you don't have such distinct voices in most bands so that's again that would make that you know very unique I, I guess that was hard for the Beatles in the sense that they had to sort of fight to get their songs on the album and each Beatles record they only they get like you know three or four George gets two and Ringo will throw him one <laughs> you know I mean 
But when you think about it that way, they made so many, they made a lot of albums in a row and had such an impact. But I mean, like you know, they only had to come up with two or three of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. For each record is different than if you have to come up with fourteen of your own and try to make them all great. There's probably an argument to be made that one of the reasons why George it was the perfect way for someone like George Harrison to develop because he didn't have to come out of the gate making solo records where he had to come up with as you're saying, like 12, 13, 14 great songs, he only had to do two or three, if that, per record, so he could develop as a songwriter to the point where we're now getting to the point on this album and the subsequent Beatles records where now he is good enough and now he could do a record of his own. He's starting to chafe against the idea that he only gets a few songs on the record. Right, I think he, uh, yeah, I don't think, I think he did, I think he resented it, and, you know, and then, of course, he made, you know, and then All Things Must Pass is sort of all the songs that he had been writing and feeling frustrated and not being able to put on a Beatles album, I suppose. songs I think maybe All Things Must Pass and Not Guilty two songs that later ended up on George Harrison's solo records were written for the White Album originally I believe because there's demo versions of them on the Beatles anthology which date from around this period but again because you know he's competing with all the Lennon McCartney stuff they kind of got pushed to one side that was the dynamic set up from the very beginning there, you know, with Lennon and McCartney being the, the, the primary songwriters. So it was hard, I'm sh- and, you know, it must have just, the competition must have been really uh, insane. But that probably did help him to uh, strive to become uh, a songwriter who could have his songs up against Lennon or McCartney and certainly in the White Album he uh, I think you'd say he comes uh, he's formidable certainly While My Guitar Gently Weeps which is off the White Album is as formidable as probably any other song on the album and it was apparently one that they weren't giving a lot of attention to the other Beatles weren't that interested and, and Harrison had to kind of call up Eric Clapton to come in to get everyone's um, drive into gear to really deliver on the track right i remember hearing some story like that or maybe i don't know maybe they weren't in i don't know maybe it wasn't that they weren't interested but who knows maybe they were just you know i always thought it was more that they were just off having fun somewhere else and he was feeling like he wanted to cut the track and they were off you know whatever getting stoned somewhere else in london or something and not being bothered to come to the studio (laughs) that day or something like that you know, so yeah, he does. He gets clapped in uh, for that. In a very rare, like, there's almost no guest outside guest appearances on Beatles records. I mean, it's which is an interesting contrast to like the, the Stones, who always had outside people. But aside from like orchestral players, the Beatles very rarely brought someone in to play an instrument that one of them could have played on a on a record. I don't know. Well, uh, I guess they brought Billy Preston in to play keyboards, but that comes later. 
Yeah, on the Letter P sessions. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. Well, I think they um, they uh, they were a musically versatile bunch, and they could handle their parts and handle a lot of different things. There's different horn solos and different kinds of solos throughout Beatles records that somebody took. It wasn't them. Yeah, I don't like, know who took them on this record. For, like Savoy Truffle on this record, for example, there's a there's a great sax part, and I forget the name of the guy, but it's the same guy who played on Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. Huh. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a featured instrumental part played by someone outside of the band, which I think they got. And 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 you know what? They must have had other you know like the uh, you know the harpsichord parts and stuff like that that are you know like uh, the yeah. harpsichord part in my life in the song in my life that must be played by somebody else. Well, that's, that's actually George Martin on piano, which has been tracked at half oh, speed. And then sped up to sound like a harpsichord. Oh, that's a nice trick. Yeah. Um, I see. So maybe George Martin played a bunch of stuff too. He did. He was kind of like the the in-house outside guy. So he was sort of in the family and could contribute some of that more classically sophisticated stuff to the records that yeah. wasn't in the Beatles. Well, I guess he's written, he must have done a, wrote a lot of arrangements, I suppose, right? Yeah, most of the orchestral arrangements on Beatles records are him. Anyway, there's not very much orchestral arrangements on the White Album much, is there? No, it's kind of, it feels like it's kind of a reaction to what they've just been doing with Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour. And this was more of a, a paired back... I mean, because it was mainly written on acoustic guitars in India when they yes, were with the Maharishi. Exactly. Which is pretty incredible to think that those songs were written up there. It's a very interesting sonic world. And... The, the subject matter and the world that the White Album creates is a very unique world. I can't, there is no other album. It doesn't, it almost, it exists on its own. You know, I don't even, even in comparison to the other Beatles albums, it's a very strange album. There's songs, it's that, very interesting. There's weird characters like Bungalow Bill and Rocky Raccoon. And a lot of these odd story songs are slightly unsettling and off kilter. Yeah. I agree, and I, I just adore it. I think it's like, so great to have them all in there, and it makes such a kind of... And it really goes all over the place. I mean, we should probably be looking at it track by track, but I don't know if we really have the time to do that. I can't... Re- we could probably recall what it is track to track by memory, right? Well, I remember it kicks off with Back in the USSR. Right. sort of nod to the Beach Boys, I guess, to California Girls. At least I always thought that's what it was. Yeah, Beach Boys and I guess Chuck Berry as well, because back in the USA. Oh, well, oh, well, I feel so good today. Oh, 
Right. Well, it starts off with that, a subversive, amusing, you know, counterculture take on this sort of, you know, uh, wholesome Americanness of the Beach Boys, I suppose you might say. Yeah, and put like politically subversive because yeah. it's kind of like... Yeah, because it's the USSR, uh, but it's done in a kind of funny way. Yeah, I think uh, it's McCartney trying to say, like, we know that the kids in the USSR aren't that different from the, the kids here or in the States. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Next, I suppose, comes Dear Prudence. Yeah. Right? It's sort of beautiful, lilting song that I guess was written about Mia Farrow's sister up in the uh, ashram. Yeah, like, I think she locked herself in a room when she was meditating and wouldn't come out for yeah. hours, so they just yeah. started, Blaine and started messing around with that yeah. as kind of a settle down, come out, yeah. and rejoin the... Yeah, the sun is out, the sky is blue, it's beautiful, and so are you. Yeah. simple and it's one of those things that sort of sounds like a metaphor and then when you hear the story and listen to the lyrics you go like that's pretty literal like it's literally dear prudence won't you open up your eyes won't you come out to play yeah i mean it's it's so um they have a way of using very simple language the beatles it's interesting because uh i always think that a lot of the beatles lyrics it's often very the language is very very simple and it doesn't look as necessarily that sophisticated as in terms of lyric writing as if you put it if you look at it on the page and you put it next to other lyricists from that era but it was more that but they just had so many important things to say to the culture that Every song encapsulated a sort of a new sensibility for the counterculture and said an important thing in a very simple, direct, accessible way. And like that directness and accessibility is really emphasized on this record, sort of coming off the back of a couple of records where there are songs like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds that are sort of very, you know, impressionistic and based more on imagery than... Um, than direct communication but then you get to this record and there's stuff like you know Revolution which is very clearly almost conversationally talking to the audience yes I think they were probably trying to there was so much political talk in that time and there was so much chaos in the world and the Vietnam War was raging and they were being you know looked at looked upon as spokesmen in a way and they were probably trying to figure out it probably was a quite a big pressure to figure out how you wanted to address and tell this massive audience uh, what your take on politics was and revolution is a very ambiguous song anyway yeah there's even the line where like 
count me out yeah and then he says in, in straight in, away out. yeah so you know the sort of duality of this political uh, reality at that time or this time anytime and it's sort of cautioning against like just blindly following figures who seem like they might be revolutionary who are selling an idea but don't necessarily have a because the, the the line that always stuck with me is you say you want a revolution well we'd all love to see the plan yeah, and uh, but there were a lot of people that had plans at that time or were coming up with plans. Um, there were a lot of very strong, you know, you had, you had Abby Hoffman, you had Jerry Rubin, you had the Black Panthers, you had a lot of people with very strong ideas about how the hippie revolution might uh, spill over into a uh, actual political revolution and some people advocating violence and some people advocating peaceful demonstration and a whole lot of chaos going on and a whole lot of people speaking very loudly. Yeah, and they, I mean, Lennon was obviously definitely in the peaceful demonstration camp. I mean, later he would do those bed-ins with Yoko, which was sort of like trying to drum up publicity for the idea of peace. Yeah, I think um, I think he felt like that he wanted to find his voice as a peace activist and Yoko is still very very vocal as a peace activist so I think they felt that very uh, sincerely. I mean you know Yoko don't you? You've been in the yeah, I do. incarnation of the Plastic Ono band? I have actually. Yes I have on several occasions. I've played guitar in the what would be called I guess yeah the, the current Plastic Ono band. I was reading an interview that you did a while ago, I think it was when your first record came out, talking about, because a lot of the players on that record, you're doing sessions in Nashville with people who played on Blonde on Blonde and all those Dylan records that he cut in Nashville, and you were saying something about, like, you don't see them as kind of mythic figures or or legendary figures. They're just like, in once you get to know someone interpersonally, it, it just becomes just another musician who are of a high of a really high standard but it's not like there's some kind of otherworldly figure did you ever have that feeling about the Beatles did you always think of them as just as people as musicians or did you ever like have the sense of them being icons I always thought of them as icons I, I never thought of the Beatles that way but I don't know if anybody does <laughs> do you think? What do you does it anybody, think of them as musicians? Musicians. I mean, it's too. I don't know. I mean, I guess you can get to that point. I mean, as, as a kid, you probably like everyone thinks of them as like the Beatles in air quotes, and as this, you know, John Paul, George, Ringo, that kind of thing. But at a certain point, I think it's more interesting to think about them as as people and try like, understand their thinking as people and their point of view and what you know what you might have in common with them or I don't know yes well I, I yeah sure I mean I, I now I, I do think of them as people because I actually I got to I mean I spent a little bit of time with all of them at, uh, at some point or another um, 
I mean, John, I only, a few times, because I was very young when he was killed, we lived in the same building, and, you know, and then I continued to know Yoko and Sean, and later on I got to know Paul and Stella and Mary and James and George. I had only had dinner with him once. Yeah, I, I know those people. I, I never thought of them as, I always, you know, even as a kid, I always knew that the Beatles was a big deal. <laughs> but does that does that shape how you hear the record at all? Just like, have, it's, it's not some figure you've seen in a magazine and only exists coming out of a stereo. If you've had dinner with someone and or if you've got to know them a bit and then you put the record on, does that change it? Change the experience of listening um, to it? I suppose so. Although, with an album like the White Album, or my experience of it is so pure that I almost don't even bother to think about it in any other way. I, I, I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you one story, though, about my some personal interaction that I, I had with the Beatles that does, not with the Beatles, with Paul, that, that relates to this album, and I hadn't th- remembered it, but I might as well, until you, I saw your email about this podcast and so I have to I do I did I did remember a, a rather unusual incident that occurred once I spent some time getting to know the McCartneys when I first got to know them I was spending some time uh, going over there this was we were all this was in a summer in Long Island they stayed in a house that I think belonged initially to Linda because Linda McCartney was from is from Long Island and her family, the Eastmans, are Long Island people, and they would spend some time in Linda's uh, house, which was rather you know, which was rather modest and sweet. And uh, I started to I went over there, uh, started to go over there, and I was getting to know Stella and Mary a little bit, and I can't remember why this would have happened but or exactly how I guess I had gone over there by myself to I I really don't recall but for whatever reason I went over there and it was just nobody was there except for me and Paul and maybe we were waiting around for somebody or something to come or something but we had some time to kill and I was sitting there in the living room with him and all of a sudden uh, he said hey uh, do you know how to play Mother Nature's Son (laughs) on the guitar (laughs) and I felt a little bit bad because I did already know but I kind of because I wanted him to show me but anyway so I said well you know what I actually do kind of pretty much know it um but anyway, and then he, but, but, so we just played it. We played it anyway. This jam Just it him and I in the room. We, did, we played Mother Nature's Son. Singing 
I don't know why that happened or why he wanted to do that. I mean, I think he just may probably just wanted to create a memorable moment for me, I suppose. I feel like he's good. I heard someone who was who was working with him tell a story once about they were driving along together somewhere and they were deciding, I think, where they were going to get the newspaper from or where they were going to get a bagel from. And McCartney was, like, thinking really hard about it. And they realised that for him, he has, it's a big decision because whichever one of these two cafes he goes into, the person who sells him that donut or that bagel or whatever, that's the greatest day of their life. They're never going to forget selling Paul McCartney a bagel. And the shop next door, it's just another day for them. No maybe, or maybe you're just making that up in your head. <laughs> maybe. But, I don't know. But I feel like he's... I don't know. He kind of understands what he means to people. I think so. I think he does. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why he wanted to have to, had that moment with me, which was very sweet and very memorable, except that I did forget it until you asked <laughs> me in the, in the email if I had had any, you know, personal interactions. Anyway, it's just, it's sort of absurd. But anyway, that moment did happen. But back to the White Album. Yeah, well, what, it's actually that kind of, my question was going to be, have you played any of the songs from this record yourself in any in any context? Just that one time. Okay. Mother Nature's Son with Paul. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh-huh. probably not going to get, it's not going to get better than that. No, any of it them, is so. not. There's no possible way it could. Let's talk about Ringo. Sure. Because I think Don't Pass Me By is his, of his Beatles career is probably the best song he wrote. Do you think? Did he write it? Yeah. Yeah. By that time he was writing. I don't know. What are the other ones? Octopus's Garden. Because um, I mean, some of the, a lot of the ones he well, did. Well, did he write Yellow Submarine? No, that was Lennon and McCartney. They wrote that for him. They wrote it for him. Yeah. And I guess they wrote him with a little help from my friends. Yeah. And Act Naturally is a Buck Owens cover. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the yeah, that's, doesn't count Um, it's it's not you know it's not one of the most important cuts on the album or anything but as I said I love all I love all the songs on the record and maybe that's another example of why it's great that it was a double album because Don't Pass Me By might not have made the 12 track I mean just that great fill how it starts is great and um, and it's a country song too I guess so it's got that I was trying to think and now I is it is, is it is it in two four? I don't know. You know, I, I was realizing the other day. I was thinking, oh, I would like to incorporate this. I noticed that. The, I guess they just kind of go. Maybe it's just halftime. They just. I noticed that a lot of Beatles songs they suddenly change grooves and go into. I couldn't tell. Think if it was another time signature, if it was halftime. But they kind of go into this. Um, 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 kind of thing like they'll do all sorts of different songs do that where they kind of go it just for like a it could be playing the same chords but they it's just a Ringo thing well, there's a bit at the end of the 
bridge in we can work it out where it just completely shifts to like goes from like doom doom and to like doom doom like for like a few bars and then goes back into the straight feel again That said, uh, I think the I think I remember. I'm not sure, but I feel like uh, the song. I mean, we're going to be boring the shit out of whoever is listening to this right now, probably. I mean, but anyway, I, I feel like the song "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds" is could be one of the first songs on a rock album that has. Uh, well, anyway, it's it's very unusual in that it it, it has a, it's the song is in three and it has a chorus in four. Yeah. And there's a, that, that transition with, like, the kick drum um, beats just before... And I don't know that that had ever been done in a, in a hit song, anyway, in a rock song mm-hmm. at that time. Certainly not nothing I can think of. Yeah. kind of speaks they had there, there is a kind of a short attention span in a good way thing with the Beatles where they kind of and McCartney's talked about when they were making records they would go into the studio and they'd, they'd be getting the drum sound up and they'd be like oh, we did this drum sound on the last session can we try something different whereas a, you know a lot of people would have just been okay we've got the sound right we're keeping that for the whole record but right. you know with some with some tracks that even get bored of the feel by the chorus and go we can make this more interesting let's change it up a bit for this part of the song yeah I mean I, I as I say you know it's the, 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 the tracks on the White Album is such a strange world you know it, the sounds change the styles change you know it, it has these strange dark wonderful uh, bizarre kind of songs like Bungalow Bill or Honey Pie or something. Then, you know, that kind of, uh, to that signature McCartney kind of uh, old-timey kind of thing, this sort of, of uh, uh, you know, Martha, my dear, or... Yeah. or um, which is about his dog. I will, which is one of the most beautiful songs yeah. probably ever. Who knows how long I've loved you? You know I love you still. Will I wait a lonely lifetime? If you want me to, I will. But then it can go to something very seriously rocky and dark and cool like happiness is a warm gun yeah i need a fix because i'm going down down to the bits that i left up town i need a fix because i'm going down mother superior jumped the gun 
Mother Superior jumped the gun. Mother Superior jumped the gun. Mother Superior jumped the gun. To like something so far out and almost punk, like Helter Skelter. Coming down fast, but I'm miles above you. avant-garde, you know, of revolution number nine. It just goes everywhere, you know? Um, fuzzy guitars and revolution, sweet acoustic guitars. Blackbird. Blackbird. And then you got Good Night, which is this rich candy ironic strings. irony yeah you know kind of Monty python kind of irony or something in there uh, homage to their to that to the sort of uh, I think it's sort of quaint Britannia okay like I always think you know yeah because I mean one of the interesting thing uh, things about the Beatles I mean it was especially a McCartney thing was that they were one of the few groups who were looking back as much as they were looking forward, like they would take from vaudeville or musical and jazz and um, musicals for inspiration yeah. as, as much as they were pushing forward into new areas. Or, uh, you know... Um, uh, skiffle? Yeah, Skiffle. Yeah, because they started off as a Skiffle band. Skiffle. I'm reading this great book at the moment um, called Just Around Midnight, which is about sort of race and rock and roll and how rock and roll in the, in the space of about 15 years went from being a pretty much exclusively black genre dominated by people like Chuck Berry and Little Richard to by the end of the 60s Hendrix was the only significant um, rock and roll artist and it was almost exclusively white dominated and it sort of talks about how the English subcultures that the Beatles and the Stones came out of were all these you know English people who were obsessed with black American music sure and like Skiffle was taking like Lead Belly songs and combining them with sort of jazz rhythm sections and creating this sort of new form of music. And then the Beatles came out of that and they were also, you know, listening to Motown records while they were making their own stuff. And McCartney was getting inspiration from James Jameson as a bass player. And they were kind of hoovering up from everywhere stylistically through the course of their career. True, and they are doing it exceptionally well. I mean, I think a lot of people were trying to do that and did it to, you know, some to great effect and some to not such great effect. But I mean, I feel like the Kinks or the Who or all sorts of people were doing were doing that. It was sort of in vogue, I suppose. Um, and it was an interesting thing, a way to sort of incorporate history, sort of play with a theatricality sort of provide some social commentary or not even in the, like the kinks just sort of a straight embracing of sort of yeah. uh, old fashioned sweet you know English countryside life I mean and the kinks was very it's funny because they they start out in that real garagey all day and all the night you really got me period and then it very quickly becomes this sort of almost semi-comic um pastoral with, like with stuff like dedicated follow-up yeah. fashion 
and or, and well-respected man about time, sort of almost class-based comedy. True. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of that in the Beatles and the White Album, too. Yeah. Actually. You know, there's just kind of... There's just so many things, and that's why I picked it as an album, because you can kind of delve into any track, and there's a real richness and a depth to all the tracks, and, you know, that's what makes it a real blueprint as as an album, uh, as as an art, artistic album, you know, from an era where long-playing albums were, was, you know, considered an, an art form. And I suppose still is, but less so today. I mean, it was another time where, you know, can you imagine the White Album being such a hit today? I mean, or even made, I don't know, you know. Um, It's interesting to think about that time where people were allowed complete freedom to be artists, especially, and then have that combined up with uh, huge commercial success that gave you complete financial freedom uh, to make any kind of album you wanted with any kind of, uh, any concepts you could come up with, you could do, you know, whether it's use an orchestra, use a, you know, an instrument from, or a player from a different part of the world, the, the limits and the boundary, there were no, it was a boundaryless inventive time. Yeah. I mean, they were only really limited by their own imaginations, and there wasn't much of a limit on the Beatles' imagination. Their imaginations were incredible. You know, I don't know. Maybe there's not. There's, of course, what's there to say about the White Album that hasn't been said? I was a little bit reluctant to choose it. But uh, then I thought, oh, maybe it's really not that discussed uh, as much as some other ones. Um, I think certainly compared to Sgt. Pepper in particular, but also Revolver to an extent, it's it's recognised as important but not talked about as much as a lot of their other records and a lot of other great records of the period, you know, like, like Pet Sounds and um, you know, Biggest Banquet and other records like that. All great records in a great era um, for record making. When you put the White Album on these days, however, however often you do put the White Album on these days, what's the experience of listening to the record now versus when you were a kid and first listening to the Beatles and discovering all this music? Well, I'll tell you, I can tell you right away. You know, I think now I'm listening for, because, you know, I'm trying to make a new album or I make records or I know about... Now I listen to more technical aspects of the album. I listen for it to the mix and what instruments are playing at what time, you know, or you know how they wanted to arrange that song. You know, like oh, well, here's a moment where you know the drums are hard panned here, and there's also there's only this instrument there, and there's, the voices seems to be doubled, but now it's moved to this you know mix moment uh, you know I'm listening to it I, I, as I can I can dissect it now maybe not so much as an engineer dissects it because that's not really my area but you know I listen to 
I, I can listen to it in a more analytical way. While as a kid or even as a young, as a teenager, you know, I think I just listened to it as a for it, for it with pure joy just to be involved in this, be brought into this this world. You know, I was just an audience member. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to think about it anything more than that. Um, and uh, both experiences are completely fascinating and wonderful, and I wouldn't... I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't trade the White Album, any single track off the White Album, you know, for anything in the world. Well, Harper, thanks for talking to me today about one of your favorite albums. Thanks for having me. That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Good.